We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. This episode is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, providing schools with the mathematics curriculum and courses to raise the level of instruction in grades 2 through 12. Stay tuned later in this episode to learn about Beast Academy, a full math curriculum for grades 2 through 5. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am super excited to have Michael Horn back on the program. A About 100 episodes ago, he was on and we talked about his work with uh, the book Blended and Disrupting Class. And now we're going to be talking about his new book coming out called Choosing College. Uh, Michael, welcome to Transformative Principle again. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm glad I didn't scare you off the first time. <laughs> no kidding. Well, um, I've been subscribed to your newsletter since a little bit before we last did our interview, and I just love all of the content that you put out, and there's so much for us to talk about, but I want to start by talking about your new book. I'm currently a principal by day, and then early morning, I teach uh, church stuff for uh, high school students, and it's really awesome, and in that, I'm talking to a lot of kids who are juniors and seniors and trying to figure out how what they're going to do for college. So they're in the process of making those decisions. And let me tell you, they are they have no idea what they're doing. And so I want to talk to you, especially to be able to to talk about that and to support them. But let's talk about some of the things that, that you've mentioned in your newsletter, especially over the past few weeks, that there are so many stats about college that are just appalling. Uh, people not finishing, people dropping out so much debt. Why do we still support this idea of having to go to college and get a degree? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, and, and the stats are dismal and gloomy. And it's 
it might be okay if it didn't cost so much. Uh-huh. But not only take a lot of time, it costs a lot of money these days, and it can really set you back. I, I think the reason we continue to be so insistent on it uh, is somewhat uh, circular in nature, mm-hmm. the logic, but a lot of employers require degrees for you to get employed. There is a huge boost in wages if you do have a college degree. So the narrative for most people to be able to get into the middle and upper classes of society has been you got to go to college, right? That's sort of the only option available to you. And that is a narrative that has emerged very strongly over the last uh, 40, 50 years. Uh, If you went back to the early 1970s, it wasn't that way. There was a lot of direct routes from high school. There was routes through trades. uh, There was military. There was apprenticeships and so forth. And now we basically say it's the military or college, and the military is less than 1% of students, so it's college for most of you. And we've created an economic construct, a social construct, and an emotional construct around college being the next step in your life, the logical next step in your journey, uh, that has, I think, allowed very little room for people to think about alternative pathways that might be more personally resonant, personally fulfilling, and might uh, be better economically. I mean, (laughs) you know. There are outliers, right? <laughs> People who don't go to college or, or, or take other forms of higher education, and they do great in life. And so how can we harness that, I think, and understand it is, is really important right now. Yeah. And, and there, are, there are outliers, but there are also lots of people who don't necessarily seem like outliers, but are living a quality life. And you know, uh, some of them have their own businesses. Some of them work for other people. But it's not all about becoming, you know, like a multimillionaire or super rich. It's about living a life that is, you know, meaningful and fulfilling, which you mentioned also. So how do you make those decisions when you're just, you know, 17, 18 years old and you're deciding this stuff for the future? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we found in the research for for the book Choosing College, frankly, was that. A lot of people don't know. You know, we have all these surveys out there that people are going to get a job, that they're going to college uh, to to get economic security, uh, all these things. And then when you actually look at how students choose, not sort of ask them questions with fixed answers in a survey that a surveyor came up with or a college came up with, but just look at their actual stories. What, what did they do? What did they not do? What did they prioritize when push came to shove? What language did they use to describe what they did? You see, there is considerable uncertainty and there's a lot of reasons people go to school that are not what you would think of as a traditional quote unquote reason to go to school. And, and I think part of what we're, we hope that comes across in the book anyway is that's okay, but acknowledge where you are and then choose in accordance with it and don't force yourself into something that is going to create a bad situation where you're you're in a place that doesn't match your current circumstances or, or your current knowledge about what might be next. And, uh, you know, a huge takeaway for me in writing the book personally was a lot more students, I think, ought to be taking a gap year before they go to school. They ought to get out there and explore in the workforce. Uh, and, you know, I don't mean gallivanting around Europe. They ought, to, they ought to be trying out different jobs, doing a coding boot camp, doing an online course earning money just to see, hey, I like this. I don't like that. Okay. If I like this, what other pathways maybe should I explore? Just so you can get a sense, what really is your passion? What is your purpose? Why are you here? And then start to make better and better decisions that way. And my my co-author, Bob, said if he had to do it again, he would have just started a business from the get-go and said, what do I like about it and whatnot and, and been an entrepreneur. And 
I suspect that's not for everyone, but it's a good way, I think, to learn a lot about yourself by developing conviction around a problem that you're trying to solve for other people, uh, building a solution to do it and saying, hey, which parts of this do I like? I, I know for me in high school, working on the newspaper was incredibly formative because I learned not only did I uh, tolerate writing, I actually loved working with other people on a product that we could all work together on and managing people. And for the first part of my career, that was a really important piece of who I was. Yeah. You know, that's really important that you talk about that gap year. I know a, a college freshman right now who said that he is essentially using his freshman year of college to take as many different classes as he can to figure out what kind of stuff he likes. And so that's a, a different way of taking a gap year. And I suspect many people will go to college and don't have an idea of what they really want to do. I know I changed my major numerous times away from education and then went back to education again and again because I felt I had a calling that I I felt like what I wanted to do was teach people. And I thought the only way to do that was to become a teacher. And boy, how wrong was I about that, right? <laughs> and so... <laughs> So, yeah, I think that the the gap year is really important. And had I personally taken some of that time, I think that I may have been able to find other interests that that fueled me a little bit more. One of the challenges, though, that we see is that if you if you do go to college and don't have an idea of what you're going to do, there's this idea of, okay, if I go to this particular college, I will have this kind of outcome and nobody can really guarantee any of those outcomes. And it's similar to the problems that we face in in K-12 education. We think, you know, when we have these standards or whatever, that everybody's going to end up in this certain place. And that's just not the case. So how do how do colleges and schools work on like quality assurance and making sure that it's something that that they can say, this is what you're actually getting when you come to the school? That's a very good question. Not one that I get often. So it's it's interesting because value, which is fundamentally what you're talking about. What's the value I'm going to get from this experience? It can only be defined in relation to the purpose that you bring to something. Why are you going and what's the outcome you hope for? And does the experience fulfill that outcome? And so value is something very difficult, I think, to communicate unless you start with an understanding of why someone is going in the context that they are in. Okay. And so I think we have you know, we, in, we're at a really interesting place in education where simultaneously we have too much data barraging people um, and we don't have enough data <laughs> at the same time. And so I think we don't have enough data that helps someone situate themselves in a circumstance with other like-minded people, and then they can make a decision in, in, in accordance with where they are. And so, you know, the value that I think we ought to be putting out there Certainly, I think we ought to be publishing all the average rates about, you know, graduation and, and debt you're likely to take on and earnings on the other side, and but also more subjective things like knowing what you now know, would you have chosen to repeat this experience? How are you entering the experience? What were you looking to achieve, right? And situating some of these things that don't have clear functional answers to it, but are more social and emotional inside of that context to give people clues to, to, to better decide. And, you know, I think it's challenging. Right now, we don't have nearly enough data around the pathways that different students take out of experiences. And there's whole fights over privacy and so forth. But in some ways, we need to take the, uh, you know, make it anonymous, but show students all the different pathways that can come out of experience 
and show that your school or your major doesn't have to be your destiny. Also, you can continue to evolve who you are. I mean, I was a history major in college. I would say the thinking certainly impacts how I write, how I approach problems, for sure. I learned a ton in history, and I love reading history. But I am not a historian. My brother is, but I'm not. And I am not defined by that experience alone. Your life is going to be really long through twisted pathways. And I I think what you said is really important also, which is you said, I want to teach people. And then you much later realized education wasn't the only way to do that, right? Part of that is we just don't know what we don't know, particularly when we're younger, but even when we're older, because we're in our communities uh, by the surroundings that we have around us. I, I like to joke, I didn't know what an engineer was until like junior year of college, because I grew up in Washington, D.C., where we didn't have any engineers. It was all lawyers and, and doctors and, and politicians. So I literally didn't know that that was something that one could do. <laughs> I thought, you know, science was like, you, you became a scientist, full stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think we have to do a more, uh, we have to do a better job of giving people different experiences and exposing them to these different ways that life can unfold. Yeah, that is that is so powerful. And that, that idea you know, similar thing with me. My dad was a software engineer as I was growing up, but I didn't ever think of it in that way. And, you know, I'm not even sure that that's the right way to describe what he did for a living. But, you know, it it's one of those things where you you just don't have exposure to it. And so one of the things that I've tried to do with my own kids who are 13 to 8 right now is I've tried to figure out how to, like, let them know that different careers exist. So, I talk about the adults that they know and what they do. And so like we live in Alaska and my kids have had two people who own their own small airlines here in Alaska who have influenced them and and given them ideas of what they could do as jobs when they grow up. And it's something that I never thought when I was a kid that you could have your own, you know, air service and, and they're exposed to that now. And so being able to expose them to that is powerful. What kind of experiences can we create to expose them to those different opportunities? Yeah. So A, I think what, you, what you're what you doing is really important, right? So helping them know, come to know the stories of other people in your lives, right? Because that personal connection is really significant. And I think it points to the first thing we ought to be doing a much more intentional job of in, in high school, which is uh, exposing people to these bit different pathways, but through building mentors in the community. And so that it's not just sort of an abstract, you know, you read about what a fire person does one day, and then you read about what someone in a lab does the next day, et cetera, et cetera, right? But really making it tangible with that emotional connection. Because A, we don't learn often without some sort of emotional stimulus that that allows us to plant it in memory, long-term memory. But B, if it's not emotional and I can feel what they what they're going through and understand what that means for their lives. You know, a lawyer, a partner in a major law firm doesn't see his family this often, right? Like really understand these things. I think it's very hard to make these decisions or, or, or internalize it in a way that goes beyond just a textbook. And so that personal connection is important. I think the second piece of it is it's really important to give people immersive experiences in those different fields where they can almost prototype themselves in a given field. You know, if, if you want to be a real estate agent, okay, let's go shadow someone for a week selling homes to see what the day-to-day is like. Do you, do you even like talking to people in this context? Because if you don't, that, that might be, you know, everything else might sound great about the transactions, 
but the human element is going to be really important. And if you don't like that piece, this might not be the right fit for you. Wow. Okay. So what was it? And then it allows us to ask questions, right? What was it about real estate that you thought was going to excite you? Oh, it was the transactions. Here are you know, 20 other industries that have similar types of buy and sell transactions. Let's explore those, right? And then let's prototype yourself through them uh, in immersive experiences that, that allow you to say, yeah, this actually does sit with me or, or no, it doesn't. And in each stage, you're asking, I want more of that. I like more of that. I don't like this. Now, the other piece that I'd say is important also is to understand, do your strengths allow you and your abilities allow you to even get in that field, right? For real estate, let's stay with that. You got to pass a math test to be able to get licensed. You don't like math a lot, you know, or, or it doesn't, forget about liking. If, it, if your skills are not up to par, you know, it might not be a great fit. And so understanding what's required to get into something. You got to take organic chemistry if you want to be a doctor. Maybe you shouldn't, but that's the way it works today. So, you know, you got to dig in and do that. What does that mean, et cetera? And so understanding those gateways into something and the fundamental skills and how they line up with your abilities, I think is another piece of this. I am really excited this year, again, to be a media partner for the Conrad Challenge. You can learn more about that at conradchallenge.org. And what I love about this challenge is that it allows students to create something that will make a difference in the world and compete with other teams to help make that be a reality. So at the show notes for this uh, podcast at transformativeprinciple.org, there is a video talking about the Conrad Challenge. And I encourage you, if you have interest in student-driven learning or project-based learning, to definitely check that out and help your students submit an application to be part of that. That's at conradchallenge.org. I got to share a quick story about this thing we started at my school last year called Synergy, which is this time where we give kids time during the day to create something that will make an impact on the world. So kids came up with whatever they wanted. They had to be in groups of at least two kids. And so some kids were in groups of 15 to 20. Some kids were in groups of just two. And we had a few kids who couldn't find anyone, but still wanted to do something and were passionate enough about it that they did it just by themselves. And so in going through that process, one of the stories that was just amazing that really speaks to what you're talking about right now is these girls wanted to teach these uh, elementary kids who have a school right next door how to do soccer, cheer, and volleyball. And so Mm -hmm. they... They figured out how to coordinate that, how to get the space and talk to the principal of the other school and bring those kids over to our school. And it was really cool. And at first they started with all girls. And then after a few a couple months, they said, you know, we actually want to have boys teach boys also. And so we're going to get some boys from our school and have them help us teach the kids soccer and volleyball and things like that, which was a great idea. Now, here's what was really amazing, Michael, is They did that and they had to like learn how to hire kids. They had to learn how to evaluate whether or not they were a good fit. And I was, you know, counseling these girls through this process. And I said, I know the boys that are going to apply for this and they're going to pretty much destroy what you're doing. So what's your plan for how to make sure that these boys stay engaged? And they said, "Okay, well, we don't think they are. We think they're going to be like us and they're going to be all excited about it. What these girls had to learn was how to fire someone in about two weeks. And so they took this, all these skills that they would never learn in a regular school system and were able to apply them. 
And in talking to them afterward, I asked them like, what was it? How did that, how did you feel about having to do that? And they were like, you know, it wasn't that bad because we had this vision of what we want to accomplish. And we had this level of boys that were not rising to that level. And it was really easy to say, no, you're not going to do this anymore because you're bringing the rest of us down. And like that type of immersive experience, and I've got like a hundred more stories that because there are so many different groups, that kind of immersive experience was so powerful for those girls that they now know they can do something really challenging and they can deal with the struggles that come along with it. And a couple of the girls are like, ah, this is really lame. I just want to play volleyball. I don't really want to teach it. Other girls were like, I don't think I want to play it anymore. I think I just want to teach people about it because it's so much more fun. And like them understanding this as seventh grade girls was, I think, one of the most powerful learning experiences that happened in my school. That's awesome. I mean, that's awesome, right? And then so now they know about themselves. They have mm-hmm. uh, some metacognition about uh, what turns them on, if you will, what, you know, what gets them out of bed. I like teaching. I like doing. It seems to be in this context, not that one, et cetera, et cetera. They've built all those skills you just talked about. And I I don't want your listeners to misunderstand me that I think academic knowledge is irrelevant. But now that you've asked this macro question, you can say, okay, let's go into the math now of how we're going to make this business sustainable, right? And then all of a sudden, all these principles we've been talking about are much more relevant and I'm much more engaged because we've we've started with an interesting question that has excited you, right? And it's not just, oh, like teach you know, physics through volleyball, that sort of a vacuous idea, but it's really deep, actual engagement that then gives you a window into asking these other questions to make you a much more active learner. And and we know that learning starts with engagement. Uh, If you're not engaged and actually doing the work, you're not going to learn. And so I I think there are ways, because I can imagine people hearing this right now saying, oh my God, we already do all this stuff. How are we going to layer on one more thing? And I think it's not a layering, it's an integration. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's the piece where it was it was so powerful because as they were posting to have people apply for their job, they had to create a job posting that had correct grammar that people would want to be part of, that was also enticing and engaging and people would want to join their group. Mm-hmm. And then as they were reviewing resumes, our applications, they, when kids didn't write well in that, as they applied, they had to say, you know, this person clearly is not a good fit because they're not organized enough to be able to fill out this form correctly. And for them to like, understand that was huge because. Well, that's huge because now they know why grammar and, and writing yes. and perspective matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just something you're lecturing on sentence diagramming. It's like, it actually is important to be able to communicate your ideas. Oh boy. Okay. Now I'm going to take English a lot more seriously. Yes. And, and that is exactly what we saw in many instances. Once kids saw a problem that they thought they could overcome, they started taking time out of their other classes. They would hurry and get their work done. And then they would work on the problem that they were actually interested in. And they would show how they were organizing things to be what it was that they were trying to do. So, you know, they'd say, well, in history, we learned about this. And I think that that applies to this project because of this little piece over here. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do this differently because I learned about that in history. And like all those things coming together was just like, it was so amazing on so many different levels that were awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. Beast Academy is a comprehensive math curriculum for grades two through five. 
designed by its creators as the math curriculum we wish we had when we were kids. It teaches kids how to think critically and understand the foundational concepts behind the math calculations they're performing. Beast Academy was created by the award-winning math experts and PhDs at Art of Problem Solving, along with art director Eric Owen, whose work includes illustrating for DC Comics. Engaging comic book-style illustrations keep kids coming back for more, even as they grapple with some of the most rigorous math problems available anywhere. Visit BeastAcademy.com to try a demo and find out how to bring this high-quality curriculum to your school. So moving on, as people take those types of opportunities and, and focus more on discrete skills or discrete abilities in that area. Do you know anything about Lambda School, which teaches? Okay. So for our listeners, Lambda School, you go to school and learn how to do coding or something software related. And then when you finish, then you get a job. And if you make more than 50 grand a year, then you pay a percentage of your tuition to the school after you're already hired. So it doesn't cost anything to start out. Tell me your thoughts about that kind of, of a system and, and how that fits into the bigger picture. Yeah, so what Lambda uh, is doing uh, as a coding boot camp in effect, but it's more than a coding boot camp in the sense that it's longer than most of the programs, a lot more support. Uh, as I understand it, it'll give you more of a foundation in computer science to be able to go off and running. I think you know boot camps like that could be a big piece of these gap years, if you will, before school. They might, you know, Ryan Craig, an author, uh, argues that they might ultimately replace college. I don't know if that's true or not. I can imagine how it could happen, but I can imagine it won't for significant swaths of the population. But the point is, these are dedicated programs that once you have an understanding, in the case of Lambda School, that this is something you're interested in, then you can go into that and go directly from there to industry. I would say... A shorter program probably makes more sense if you're not certain that this is a field for you where you can wet your appetite and dip your toe in, right? Lambda school makes a ton of sense. I think given it's, I want to say it's nine months. I mean, I would be thinking quicker sprints if you're just trying to sample and shop and figure out who you are. But if you said, yeah, this is something I want to do. I want to be coder. Great. Lambda school is a great way, I think, to get into that industry, build your foundation, then go from there. And then I love the financing mechanism that you just talked about is called an income share agreement. Basically, instead of debt, uh, where we're going to take a fixed dollar amount, regardless of what you earn, that's how debt works, right? Income share says we're only going to take a fixed percentage of your income if you earn above this amount. And as a result, you know that percentage, ideally, it's not 50% of your income, (laughs) such that you're crippling yourself, but it's something small. Uh, Lambda is a little higher than I think several of the other ones are. They're at 17%, I want to say, over two years. People should check this, though, not take my word for it. But it's, you know, it's, it's a short burst of a couple years of your earnings, 17%, I think, in their case. So you know ahead of time, hey, if I make $100,000, 17K of that is going to go to Lambda School over two years, right? And then that's how they finance it. You know, they get the 34K in the back end. But you, as an individual, you're protected. If you don't get a good job, if it doesn't work out for you, if you decide midway through the program, I hate coding. This is not what I want to do. You don't pay a dime. <laughs> and, you know, assuming you don't get the good job out of it, right? And that's a really important principle out of these programs, I think, is to basically for them to put their money where their mouth is and align risk with you as the individual. And I think income share agreements will be a big 
uh, trend in the future. I think it'll be a way for a lot of people that uh, have worries about debts to be able to think about higher education. And we see traditional universities starting to do this as well. Purdue University has an income share agreement uh, not to replace federal financial aid, but to replace uh, private student loans. University of Utah has one similar agreement. I think they're going to start to grow in popularity as students say, hey, I want a simple program I can understand that's not going to be a fixed dollar amount and not going to, I can't get rid of it in bankruptcy because we can't discharge student loans in bankruptcy. So I think income share agreements will be a very uh, important part of the higher education landscape in years to come. Yeah. And and the cost of college is a big consideration that that we need to talk about also. You know, for me personally, I graduated from college and graduated when I was, I think, 23 or 24, somewhere around there. And took me six full years to pay off mine and my wife's uh, student loan debt. And and I know other people who remember their parents paying off their own student loan debt. And, you know, that idea of, you know, having it around for, you know, 20 or 30 years after you're done with college uh, compared to being done after two years really seems like, like a bargain. And, you know, I would, I would have gladly paid, you know, 17% of my income, as a first two year teacher, it wasn't very much. So that would have been, <laughs> that would have been even better, yeah, sure. but paying a percentage would have been, I think a lot more manageable than, you know, having to stick around for 20 years. And look, and if, you, and if you strike it rich, right, if you had landed a job that was half a million a year, most of these agreements, by the way, are capped. So you're not going to pay more than a two and a half mm-hmm. X what the program cost. But, you know, you'd probably be yeah. thrilled to give some of that money back to the institution that helped you land something like that. Right. So you, you worked out on both sides. <laughs> yeah. So what do you see as the, the future of, of the cost of college? And I think income share agreements are one way to, to mitigate that. And you somewhere in, in your writings wrote about this company called admit, which helps you find a cheaper college to go to. What are, what are your thoughts about the future of how that's going to happen? Is there a bubble and is it going to burst? And are we going to, you know, is that going to cause the the world to end or what's going on there? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I think some universities, their costs are going to continue to increase. So like the traditional top few hundred institutions there, I don't see productivity gains that are going to lead to cost decreases uh, for them. They're going to continue to add dining halls, administrative uh, overhead, all these things that drive up cost. That's my view of, you know, the Harvards, the Yales, et cetera, the world. By the same token, those top couple hundred institutions, though, humongous endowments that uh, largely means that for, for many students who make uh, their families make less than 65k a year, uh, they get free tuition at those schools and then a ton of financial aid up to about 200k in earnings. I think both of those trends will increase at the top schools. I think in the by the same token you're going to start to see price competition set in in the rest of higher ed. Traditionally online education has been priced, uh, at the same as the on-campus experience, I think that's going to start to end. Uh, we're starting to see lower cost programs take more and more market share as people realize actually affordability is an asset. It is not a sign of, of poor quality, but actually a sign of value. And so I think we're going to see more and more competition there where uh, online programs increasingly price at the marginal cost that it, uh, that it costs to serve an extra student. Uh, which is in an online program often next to nothing. And so I think you're going to see a, lo- a big uh, decline in, in, in prices in several quarters. And I think you're going to see a lot of these faster and cheaper programs like Lambda School that we were talking about continue to emerge that structure themselves in novel ways uh, such that you can 
you know, move through your career with a variety of different pathways. And so, you know, the net cost of what you're spending on higher education across your life may be very similar to what it is today, actually. But I think it's going to be spread out over your life as opposed to uh, a four-year chunk and maybe a two-year chunk if you then get a master's, right? I, I think it's going to be much more spread out. And so as opposed to these sort of one-time episodic dances with higher ed that then go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's also a lot of people who in like the online business world are teaching things like digital marketing, SEO, copywriting, and several other discrete skills that you know, is taking a, a similar approach to Lambda where you're focusing really heavily on one thing, whereas universities is trying to give you this broad experience of general education and then specialized education. Those types of places, you know, they, they're they charging a fraction of what a university would be charging for tuition and giving you a skill that you can use to make money, you know, almost immediately and and so I see those as rising more to replace the idea of going to college and instead, you know, going to several different individuals to learn how to use these skills and then, you know, create value uh, that you could then give to other people in that way. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it comes back to what's your why. And and, and again, you know, this is what obviously Choosing College, our book is, is designed to help you do, which is to understand what what are the reasons you're going. And it might not be to get a job. You know, a lot of people are going for social and emotional reasons. And so that might have some impact on what you do. And I think as those jobs evolve, frankly, the, the whys evolve over time in, in response to what you're describing, which is different options, different senses of what society values, different things that we say are good for you, your sense of what progress looks like for you, what your why is in a given circumstance uh, could evolve as well. And so you know, today, if you are, your reason for going to school is to get into the best school, which is circular, I realize, but there's a lot of people, myself included, uh, who go to school because they want to get in the best. They feel like that they've done the work. They want the classic college experience. What you're describing might not, you know, deliver on that because it doesn't have that prestige, that reputation, that four-year experience, et cetera, et cetera, right? But you can imagine that 15 years from now, maybe it will because, We'll be piecing these together in prestigious ways that give them deep value. And so what today doesn't look like an acceptable option 15 years from now might actually be a great one for someone having that same uh, why of, what, of what's driving them to attend. By the same token, another set of students we found go to school to uh, what they would say, help me step it up. So I'm in a place in my life that I don't like. Uh, I want to hold on to pieces of it, but this job, whatever it is, is not working for me time for me to step it up. This isn't who I am and I'm going to go back to school to earn more and so forth. They're the fastest, most direct pathway is absolutely what they want. And there, you know, you got to give them and give it to them. And then I would say there's a whole host of students who are going to do what's expected of them because someone else told them to go to college. Well, turns out that's not a very good reason to go to college and it doesn't work out very well. And so for those students, we ought to be figuring out how to help their parents or their, the educators or whoever it is around them, their peers that are causing them to have this mindset that I have to go to college, even though I'm not excited to think through what are your other options? How do we broaden what you could do next to learn more about life and yourself and then chart a path from there? And I think that gets into what you're talking about, which is, you know, you could imagine a very rich educational uh, pathway where you do a bunch of short experiences with mentors who are guiding you and pulling you through different uh, parts of it. And 
that could be very exciting, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to go back to something that you touched on a little bit, that people are going for social emotional supports. And you wrote an article in Forbes a few weeks ago about wraparound supports for schools. And that was talking more about the K-12 sector. But I think that this is important because it is increasingly something that we are struggling with in education as a whole. And so a lot of times we we have all these different things that we can do to support students that don't actually lead to better academic outcomes and sometimes lead to much better social emotional outcomes and it's just not it's not a guarantee and so how do we take those social emotional supports and do that in a way that is not just like okay it's time for social emotional time let's spend the next 15 minutes talking about how we feel and then we'll get back to what we really think is important, which is content. So yeah. how do we how do we manage that and find a good solution to that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it comes back to viewing these things not as distinct spheres, but as integrated and interdependent. Meaning the way I impact you emotionally and socially is going to have clear spillover into your academic life, right? And so, you know, what we talked about, I think, last time on, that I was on your podcast was that we have a system right now where... Regardless of what you learn, you make progress and you move on to the next thing. So we can talk about grit and perseverance and growth mindset and all these things all we want till we're blue in the face. But systematically, the the system is saying to students, you know, your teacher may have just given you a 15-minute lecture about the importance of grit, but it actually doesn't matter because you're going to move on regardless of whether you do any work and whether you get anything. (laughs) So, So, you know... Don't worry about it. And, and we always say, we always tell uh, parents, right? We're both parents. Kids look at what you do much more than what you say, right? They, they want to model themselves. And if the system is, you know, doing this to them, they're not going to pay very much attention. And so I think the real, the real beauty or the real magic happens when you create a seamless integrated system that encompasses all of this as one thing, and it's not just like I'm adding on social emotional here, I'm adding on this over on the left side, I'm adding this on the right side, and it's a hodgepodge of programs, but instead something that's finally integrated and works together and in harmony with itself. And I, you know, that that's I hope it's a big takeaway from our book, which is that everyone says you're going to college these days to get a job. That is not what students are saying because to our earlier conversation, they don't have a clue what a job is right. or what their possible career pathways could be. And so rather than just focus on the functional things in life, these social and emotional drivers of why we do things are actually way more important in terms of what motivates us to do something. But we can use them to create a good functional outcome or a good academic outcome. And if we don't have this in harmony, you know, we, we, we sort of miss the boat somehow. Yeah. You know, I, my personal vision of education in the future is that it is very individualized that each student sets their own goals and that rather than saying, here's all these standards that everybody has to meet, we have a much different approach where it is focused on that student. And in the younger ages, it's really them, you know, they'd still be doing all the same standards because kids like to learn and they like to read and we beat that out of them in school. And rather than, you know, us saying, here's all the things you have to learn. It's more of a what are the things that you're interested in? How can we help you? Kind of like a Montessori approach, but with a lot more of the social emotional integrated into it. You know, if a kid's struggling with anxiety, we should be spending time on helping them deal with that struggle. If a kid is struggling with math, we should spend more time helping them 
understand math better. So it's like Montessori in that the kids are guiding it, but it's also, you know, like our traditional system where we're saying this, these are the things you need to learn. And, you know, I don't know exactly how to do that, but the integrated approach is, is what I have seen every time that I've had meaningful experiences with students in schools is it's about it being integrated and not a one-off. Here's this additional thing that we're adding on. So I think that's really powerful. Well, I love the way you just said that, that marriage of the two, uh, you know, I'm, where I am right now with uh, two five-year-olds uh, uh-huh. uh, who are entering a Montessori program actually this year. Um, cool. And I'm looking at the public schools and I wish they actually would do exactly what you just said, which is blend these things. Because there's much to love about that personalized approach. But when you're young, you do need direction from teachers and helping you make sure you get exposure to foundational material that can allow you to broaden and expand and so forth. So from my perspective, Standards are a really good thing to help us understand what you need to know and do, but they shouldn't guide everyone that they do that on the exact same day or way and so exactly. forth, right? Yep. So, um, and that as you get older, I would say we give more and more release to allow you to follow different pathways, right? As at, when, when you're in high school, by the time you're in high school, I think at that point, students should be able to have a lot more choice over what subjects that they do want to interest in, and maybe they won't do every standard, right? That we right. said they need to do, right? I'm not sure everyone needs calculus, or I guess that's not a standard, but algebra two. I'm not right. sure everyone needs that. But if we didn't give them the foundation of math in the beginning, that would be a crime, I think, because we then have deprived them of the opportunity to even have that meaningful choice. But that personalization, I think, within, you know, is incredibly important. And, and I like the way you say it as well, which is if, someone's sailing in math and having no problem, but anxiety is really, you know, troubling them. That's where we got to, you know, like, let's support, you know, let's play to your strengths and support you in your weaknesses. Right. And, and figure out who's the best you, um, as opposed to like hammering you for, you know, being bad at a certain thing and trying, you know, let's make sure we support you as a learner and, and, and as a person. Yeah, boy, that has just, I'm hopeful that we can get there, but I'm also fearful that it's such a huge ship to to move that that we're never going to get there for every child. And that's that's what I think every child really needs. So um, the last question that I ask, Michael, I asked you this last time. And the question is, how what can a principal do this week to be a transformative leader like you? Uh, it's kind of you to say I'm a transformative leader. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. But, the, uh, you know. I think principals ought to step back. We've had such, I'm going to talk to high school principals for a moment in this, uh, which is we've had such a focus, I think, over the last 20 years on reading, writing, math, that we've narrowed the curriculum in a lot of ways. We've doubled up on reading and writing, We've, uh, which I think is actually bad for reading and writing. I think uh-huh. it's better when you're broad. Uh, but uh, we've cut out physical education. We've cut out the arts. We've cut out some of these extracurriculars. And I think principals should step back and say, next year as I enter the year, how do I more thoughtfully integrate a variety of experiences so students not only learn the foundational standards, which I'm again, I'm not advocating that we don't do that. I think they're important, but that we learn those and that they learn about who they are. Because what jumped out loud and clear to me from the research we did is that students are unable to answer that question by and large today. And it's not that they have to know exactly what they're going to do 20 years from now. That's not what I'm saying. But they, they, they should have a better sense of who I am as a person, what's my purpose today, and passions that I am building, right? And 
uh, I think a lot of people, passions are something that they do to look good for college, as opposed to something that they're actually passionate about. And how do I help people build those, that, those intrinsic um, qualities? And that's what a principal ought to ask to be able to strategically position the school to, to tackle that in the year to come. Yeah. Wow. I, I think that that's great. And if you can integrate more authentic experiences for your students, I think that you're going to have great success with that. Thank you again for coming on the show. If you are listening and want to learn more about Michael, you can go to michaelbhorn.com. His book, Choosing College, is uh, coming out right away. And so by the time you listen to this, it's it's probably been out. So uh, make sure you get that and you can get that at the website or you can go to uh, Amazon and get it there. There's also links in the show notes at transformativeprinciple.org. Thank you again, Michael, for being part of Transformative Principle. Thanks for having me. Thank you to our sponsor, Art of Problem Solving. Did you know that the award-winning students at competitions like International Math Olympiad and Math Counts routinely prepare by taking courses from Art of Problem Solving? Learn more about how to bring this rigorous, deeply engaging math curriculum to your school or district by visiting artofproblemsolving.com. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.